together to the book of Titus. Titus is near the end of the New Testament. It's the second last of Paul's letters that's listed. Just a little bit before Hebrews in your Bible. It is the last of the so-called pastoral epistles. Which doesn't just mean they were written only for pastors. They were written for all of us. And so this morning we will be looking at the first four verses of chapter 1. As typically is the case, as we move into a letter from the Apostle Paul, we will slow down our pace in looking at the text. You recall when we were in Acts, we would look at a half a chapter or a chapter at a time. The same thing for Amos. But here, the richness of Paul's language and and the detail that is in it requires us to go at a little bit slower pace. But if you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and sufficient word, this is the very word of the true and living God. Titus, chapter 1. Paul a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in His Word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Thus far the reading of God's Word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we ask that You would use Your Word with us and for us this morning. We ask, O Lord, that You would remind us of all that the Lord Jesus Christ has done. And we long to see, O Lord, we long to see the Lord Jesus in Your Word. But we long to see Him face to face. We ask all of this in His most magnificent name, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, this is a new book for us here, a New Testament epistle, the epistle of Titus. And as I thought about this book, one of the things you do as a preacher is you try and think about what's the main theme of this book. You think about it for very practical reasons, the ways to think about the way your sermons will be put together. You need to have some kind of little pithy thing on the website describing it for people. And so it it makes you do this, practically speaking. And I thought about it in the context of something that, quite frankly, I don't know that much about. But I hope you do. I thought about it in the context of remodeling. Have you ever done remodeling in your home or in your office or maybe in in someone else's place. Now, 
I know a little bit about it because I've had things done in my house. I just don't dare do any remodeling. I save that for craftier hands. But you know what it's like to have remodeling done. There's a lot of hard work involved, isn't there? You have to put your nose to the grindstone, so to speak. Use your elbow grease, whatever other cliches you can think of. But there's hard work in remodeling. But you can't just go and rush into remodeling, can you? You need to have a plan. You need to map out where things will go. You don't just start knocking down walls willy-nilly. You, you try and think about what that's going to mean. And oftentimes, we do remodeling not because we want to expand or do something new, but we just want to restore things that have fallen into disrepair. Perhaps your shower needs replacing because it leaks. Or perhaps the counter is cracked and you want to put something in that is a bit more sturdy. Well, I hope you understand what that looks like and what that feels like. Perhaps you even can recall what that smells like to be going on in your home. Because that, in a practical, earthy way, is describing what Paul is encouraging Titus to do in the church in Crete. Titus is to do the work of remodeling the work of restoring, the work of building up, and Paul is giving him a plan and encouragement to get it done. You see, because the church in Crete is a new church, and it's a bit of a mess. We'll see in weeks to come that the the Cretans have a reputation for not being, well, let's just say the most morally upstanding people. And that has worked its way into the church. And you see, what has happened is, in the church in Crete, there has been a loss of the wonder of the gospel. There has been a loss in the belief of the power of the gospel. There has been a loss in the witness for the gospel because there has been a loss of effort for the gospel. The Cretans have gotten lazy. They have gone back to old ways. They think that, well, it's okay if the shower leaks. We'll just wipe it up occasionally. And so the counter is a mess and the floor is uneven. You know, it's just so hard to do the work. But you see, Paul reminds Titus and you and me that the gospel is such a wonderful powerful, miraculous thing that we must give the entirety of our lives to it. As we look here at this first passage, Paul begins, he will give some some directives to elders, to families, to society, but he is going to begin by describing this great promise of the gospel and what it brings to the church in Crete. It's the same promise that it brings to the church in Katy. We will see three things here this morning, Lord willing. First, we will see Paul as he describes the bringing of the promise. Bringing the promise. And then secondly, we will see the purpose of the promise. The purpose, the reason why the promise was brought. And then lastly, we will see the manifestation of the promise manifestation, kids, that means showing 
the promise so we can see it. Bringing a purpose and a manifestation. Well, what is this promise that God is bringing and who is He bringing it to? Well, He's bringing it first to a man by the name of Titus. And in order to understand what Paul is doing here and how this applies to us, we must understand just a little bit about Titus. You see, I fear many of us approach Titus as the third of the pastoral epistles. And we think about this book as being basically another one in a series of how-to-do-church books. Kind of a practical guide. And it is partly that, but it is more than that. See, we have to remember the obvious. Titus was a real live, living, breathing, eating, sleeping person. He was not just simply a figment of Paul's imagination. He was a man who had work to do, who needed encouragement. He was a man whom Paul had left in charge of the church at Crete. He was a Greek man. You may recall, he was specifically left uncircumcised so that Paul could prove a point to the Galatian church that circumcision was not a matter of salvation. He had worked with Paul very closely at Corinth. He was one of Paul's most trusted lieutenants. As a matter of fact, we often think of Timothy as being Paul's son in the faith. Don't we often even describe a mentoring relationship as a Paul-Timothy relationship? But one of the things we need to know is the way that Paul describes Titus, we'll see later in verse 4, is virtually exactly the way he describes Timothy. You need to think about Titus as another Timothy, another disciple of Paul. But he was perhaps even more trusted than Timothy because he was a bit older, more mature. You see, Timothy was left in charge of Ephesus, but Titus was given the very difficult task of first gathering up the collection for the saints, and you know how hard it is to pry people from their money for a good cause, And then secondly, when Paul and the Corinthians had had a falling out, so much so that Paul didn't even know if he was welcome in Corinth again, he sent Titus to repair the breach. Titus accomplished it. Titus is not mentioned very often in Acts, and that's because many people think he was a relative, maybe even as close of a relative as a brother, to Luke. So we're talking about a significant man of the faith, a man who is a pastor, a man who needs to give help to his congregation. And so Paul begins first by reminding Titus of the promise that has come to him and the church that he might preach it. You have to understand that this four verses here is basically a lengthy, theologically rich, biblically steeped hello. Or maybe, dear sir, in our common parlance. This is the beginning of a letter. But you know how Paul is. Paul can't even say hello without telling you how great Jesus is. Is your life like that? I don't mean that you have to take five sentences to say one word every time. But does your life manifest the fact that you are so thrilled with the Lord Jesus Christ that others can't help but see it in you. 
You see, Paul begins, and as he starts to say hello, he tells about the promise that was brought to the world by the Lord. And he begins by describing it in his own life. First, as he is a man under authority, and then as he is a man on a mission. First, Paul describes how he brings the promise as a man under authority. Look at the first verse. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, this is how Paul describes himself. A servant and an apostle. Now, this is perhaps the most mature description of Paul in all of the New Testament. Paul wrote Titus right before 2 Timothy. This is after the events of Acts 28. Paul has been in Rome. He has been in prison. He is set free for a period of time. And he does what he always did, went on missionary trips to preach the gospel. Later he will go back into prison and be beheaded. So this is the second last thing that Paul writes. And as he describes himself to Titus and the church, he describes himself first as a servant of God. This is the most mature expression of Paul's faith. Now this is steeped in the Old Testament. The phrase servant of God is a phrase that was used of Moses, of Joshua, of the prophets. But this word is a a very earthy word. It is a humble title. It means, perhaps some of your translations even have it, bond servant or bond slave. This is not a servant like Jeeves. You know who Jeeves is, right? He's the butler in the tuxedo with the perfect diction and the white gloves and the silver platter. And not everyone has a Jeeves, right? Do you have a Jeeves? I don't have a Jeeves because Jeeves is quite expensive. Jeeves doesn't just serve anyone. He serves royalty and presidents and executives. You see, a bond servant, a slave, was not a Jeeves. He was the lowest form of slave. There are two types of slavery in the Old Testament. There are those who are slaves for a period of time and then are set free. And then there are those who are permanent abiding slaves. And unlike slavery in our country's history, you became a permanent abiding slave by your own choice. When the time came to be set free, a slave could say, no, no, I I can't leave my master. There's, There's no possible way I can. I have to be with him forever. There's such a bond between us. And what they would do is they would take the slave, now imagine this, Men, you can get a little cringe here. Ladies, perhaps not so much. They would take the slave by the ear, take him up to the doorpost, and they would, with an implement, put a hole in his ear. Literally nail his ear to the door, remove the implement, and he would have a hole like a big earring hole. And that way everyone would know that he was a bond slave. Paul says... That's the kind of servant I am. I've willingly chosen to be under my Lord. I never want to be free from Jesus, ever. I'm not looking for a way out. I'm not looking for a loophole. 
You see, far too often today, Christians serve Jesus with one eye on him and one eye on a loophole. Like they're looking at the tax code. Well, I need to serve Jesus. I need to really honor the Lord's Day. But how could I, if I only... Well, I need to tell the truth, but you know... You see, Paul says there are no loopholes in following Jesus. You are His. You are His permanently. And you must be His willingly. You must be humble. You must be willing to be the lowest of the low. Now, we have to understand... Again, this is Paul's most mature expression of who he is. Now, think about all of the things he could have said. Paul, great theologian, author of the epistle to the Romans. Paul, missionary genius. Three missionary trips. Dozens of churches planted. Paul, evangelist extraordinaire. Hundreds converted for the Lord. Paul, Jew of Jews, trained by the greatest university in all of Israel under the greatest teacher ever. Paul, the success story of the church. Now that sounds humorous when we talk about it with Paul, isn't it? But I challenge you this afternoon to go to the web pages of some famous ministries and see how men describe themselves. It's more like that than like Titus 1.1. You hear how excited they are for the wonderful things they have done. That's the way the world looks, doesn't it? And we are tempted to do so as well because we are tempted to land on our success. But Paul does not. He says, I am a man under the Lord. My way is God's way. My worth is God's worth. I have nothing to stand on. When you speak to others, what do you put forward? Do you put forward how wise you are? How many Bible verses you've memorized? How great a prayer warrior you are? Or do you say, I'm a servant of the Most High God, the Lord Almighty. You see, Paul knew he was a man under authority, but he was also a man on a mission. Because you see, if the Old Testament title he's using, Servant of God, there is also a parallel New Testament title. That is, the Apostle of Jesus Christ. Apostle is simply a Greek transliteration of meaning the one who is sent out. We might think of it as an ambassador or someone who is out on a mission. Now, if you are an apostle, if you are sent out, that it should be self-evident that you are sent out on someone else's mission. Right? Because otherwise you would be the one sending. If you are the one sent, someone is sending you. That's what Paul is saying. He's not in control. Jesus is. His priorities are not the ones that are in front. It's Jesus' priorities. And so, Paul goes out as an apostle of Jesus Christ. But there's another thing that is helpful to think about as an apostle. And that is that Paul's dignity comes not from himself or what he has done, but his dignity comes from Jesus. Now, there is a very real sense that each Christian is an apostle, a small a, 
apostle. I don't mean to say that we are among the twelve, but there is a sense in which each of us is sent out if we take very seriously the Great Commission of Matthew. Isn't that true? We are to do what? What's that big verb of the Great Commission? Go! Do you believe in the Great Commission? Then you're sent out. Then you're an apostle. Then you are on a mission from Jesus. And you get all of your worth from Jesus and His mission. Your worth does not come from whether you graduated college or not. You can stop beating yourself up about dropping out of college today. Your worth does not come from how many years you have lived of marital bliss. It comes from Jesus. Your worth does not come from how many children you have. Your worth does not even come from how many of your children walk with the Lord. We'll see in a minute that's God's responsibility. Your worth comes from Jesus Christ. And so anytime you are tempted to beat yourself up that you are not worthy because of something else, you must look behind you and say, get behind me, Satan, and your thoughts. I have value and worth because of Jesus. He has saved me. He has sent me out. Paul was entrusted with this mission. He had value, but also that value was seen and that God gave him this mission. Look with me at verse 3. He's an apostle of Jesus Christ who has been entrusted by the command of God, our Savior. You see, this is why Paul went willingly. He has been entrusted with a task and he wants to see the task through. And you see, when we forget this task, we begin to lose ourselves. Because if one of the definitions of a Christian, of a believer in Jesus Christ, is one who is sent out, one who is obedient to the Great Commission, if we forget that task, we forget what we are supposed to be. Isn't that right? What we are supposed to know, how we are supposed to act. If you were a doctor and you forgot it was your task to heal people, what would you think of yourself? You would wonder who you are and why you're wearing this white lab coat and why this shiny stethoscope is around you that annoys your neck. If you were a car mechanic and you forgot that what your task to do was to fix machines, you would wonder why you had coveralls on and why your hands had grease on them. What in the world are you doing here? If you forgot you were a parent, you would look around your house and you'd say, who are all these crazy people and what do I have to do with them? But it is when you remember this task that everything falls into place, isn't it? All of the dominoes line up. Paul knew this. He knew that if we forget the mission, we forget our purpose, and then we forget our purpose in life. You see, the mission is what also keeps us not only on task, but it keeps us thinking about ourselves and our own need for personal holiness and killing sin. This is what causes us to combat sin. When you're about to go off on a 20-mile hike, 
you check what's in your pack, don't you? You don't put an iron in your pack. You don't put a brick in your pack when you're about to go off on that long hike, do you? No, you don't. Because you know it's just going to slow you down. It's going to drag you down. So if you are on a mission for Jesus Christ, why would you load yourself down till you are crawling with sin? You see, Paul reminds us that there is a promise that is brought. Now, what is this promise? Why is this promise brought to us? We look at the second thing that Paul tells us in his lengthy hello. He tells us that there is a purpose for the promise. We see this here at the end of verse 1 and in verse 2. He is a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of, that is, for the purpose of, for the furtherance of, these three things. The faith of God's elect, their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, and third, in hope of eternal life. Three purposes to this promise from the Lord. The first is faith, saving faith. Now, Paul reminds us that the whole purpose that he is sent out by God, that he is a servant of God, is for the faith of God's elect. Now, how do we have faith? Some might say, well, we conjure up our own faith. We have to produce it. And that's why Paul's there. He's there to stir it up in us. Perhaps Paul is like kindling at a campfire. He helps to build us up that we would have faith. But there's only one problem with that. Paul says it is the faith of God's elect. It's not just anyone's faith. It's the faith of God's chosen people. It's the faith of people that God already knows are His. It's the faith of those whom God has already given faith to. You see, Paul is out bringing the promise of God to people that God has already prepared beforehand. Now, if that doesn't thrill your heart for evangelism, I don't know what will. Because it's not about how well you've memorized an evangelistic pitch. It is about what God has done beforehand in calling a people to Himself, in giving a heart of flesh instead of a heart of stone. I was talking to a good friend of mine who ministers about 40 miles north of Cuba in southern Florida. And he was telling me about a trip that he made. He makes several trips into Cuba each year. And he described how he goes into homes and dozens of people gather around and through an interpreter he gives the gospel. And so this was a few years ago and he said when I was uh, perhaps even a little bit dumber than I am now, I was doing the Romans road with people. You know what that's like. You go from Romans 1 to Romans 3. You know, there, there is none who is righteous. All have fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 6 and so on. And he said he got through about Romans 3. There is none who is righteous. No, not one. And one of the ladies that he was witnessing to started crying. And she said, virtually quoting the Philippian jailer, what must I do to be saved? And do you know what his response was? Wait a minute. I'm not through yet. 
Now that's humorous, but I think sometimes that's how we view evangelism. We need to do our way. We need to be experts. We need to have expertise in it. When in reality, God had already gripped the heart of this woman who didn't even know the same language as the preacher. And all the preacher had done was quote the scripture to her. And her heart broke and melted. And God gave new birth to one of his children. Do stories like that thrill your heart and give you hope? Because you see, even you kids can bring the promise to others. Even you can explain the need for saving faith because it doesn't need to be a seminary degree. It doesn't need to be simple. It could be something as simple as, you know, I do wrong things all the time. I don't know why, but sometimes I hit my brother. And that makes me feel really bad. But you know what? Jesus died for me. And he forgave me. And I'm right with God. I think that's something a five-year-old could say, don't you? So why couldn't a 55 or a 75-year-old say? You see, saving faith comes from the Lord. But it's not just that initial faith. You see, Paul had to bring faith to others so that they would be built up in it. Because if faith is how we begin, faith is also how we go on. How can you make it through the day without trusting in the Lord? You never know when the Lord will call you home. You never know how fragile life is until it's put before you. Saving faith is part of the purpose of Paul's mission, bringing the promise. The second of the purposes, though, is transforming truth. And I use that intentionally. Paul is a servant and an apostle for the sake also of the elect's knowledge of the truth. And don't leave off the last phrase, which accords with godliness. Now, we all know that knowledge is important. It absolutely is. I don't think I need to convince a Reformed church with confessions and catechisms and Bible memorization plans and vacation Bible schools that understanding and knowing things is important. But we also have to understand that knowledge, truth, is about more than just information. There are computers that can spit out all kinds of facts, now even on demand. Tell me the weather, computer. It's 73 degrees. Tell me the population of Katy, computer. It's so much. Tell me the score in the football game, computer. And it can. Does the computer do anything with that information? No. Those of you that teach, those of you that are in school, know that there are levels of understanding. There is bare information, but you must move on to knowledge and wisdom. The application of that in your life. And that's what Paul is saying here. Knowledge is important, but it must be a knowledge of the truth that transforms. It is not enough to know about the Bible. If you could recite from memory the Scriptures, but don't believe it, and it doesn't change your life, you have wasted your time. I say that with biblical certainty. 
because there was an entire group of men who memorized the scriptures and did not know Jesus. Their names are the Pharisees. And one of them knows more Bible verses than this entire room put together. But you see, they didn't know Jesus. And it didn't change who they were. They remained vindictive, cruel, harsh, lying, murderous. It made no impact on their heart. But you see, Paul says the real truth that we must know must be in accordance with godliness. It must start by transforming each and every one of us. If you know the Bible, if you know the truth of God's Word, your life must be changed. You must seek to follow Jesus. You must seek to tell the truth. You must seek to be giving. You must seek to be loving. You must seek to honor your parents. You must seek to honor life. If you don't, you don't really know the truth. Because you see, the truth transforms us. It brings us in line with God, with godliness. But it even goes beyond us individually. The truth transforms us in our relationships. Now, that doesn't mean that as soon as we have a knowledge of the truth, that all of our relationships are perfect. I don't mean to say, are you having trouble with your marriage? Take two Pauline epistles and call me in the morning, and everything will be fine. But I do mean to say, if you have trouble in your marriage, your only real hope is in the truth of the Scriptures and what it tells you about God, about yourself, and about Jesus. That's where real change will happen. It may be slow. Remember, sanctification and growth is like a tree growing. There is a solidness to it, but it doesn't spring up overnight. It is the weeds that spring up quickly and are choked off so often. Transforming truth transforms individuals, it, informs, it transforms relationships, and it transforms the world. One last point on this. Truth must transform you, but you need truth to transform you. You cannot be transformed apart from the truth of God's Word. That's why He gave it to us. It's part of the purpose. Well, the purpose of saving faith, the purpose of transforming truth, but then finally the purpose of enduring hope. Look at what Paul says in verse 2. He is a servant and an apostle in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before ages began, and at the proper time manifested in His Word through preaching. Hope is the motivation for the Christian. It's what pushes us on. It is the end that we seek. You know what I mean by hope. I have prepared a place for you. In my Father's house are many rooms. Come, Lord Jesus, quickly. You see, these are set before us so we know where we are going. Because the Christian life is not standing in place. It is moving to a direction. It is following Jesus to our eternal hope. It is a hope that God has put before us. And He's put it before us wonderfully, both in the past and in the present. You see, it is a hope of promise. A hope of promise before even time began. 
Before the very ages began, before God had put forth time itself, the hope of eternal life was set before us. Now, how can we know that that's true? How could we know that that hope would be there even before our time? Paul tells us it's because of the character of the one who promised, God himself. God is the one who never lies, Paul says. He's not capable of lying. That describes who he is. You notice Paul doesn't say God who doesn't lie. He doesn't even say God who hasn't lied. He says God who can never lie. And he takes this wonderful word. You know how when we see words in English with an A in front of them, they mean something is not true. We've looked at this before, like an atheist. They're defined by the fact that they don't believe in God. What Paul has done has taken a word, and it's actually humorous. It's a word that is used later to describe the Cretans. The word is liar in the Greek. And he put an A in front of it. If being a Cretan means you are known to be a liar, God is known as the non-liar, the one who can never lie, the one whose promises are always true, yea and amen, in Christ Jesus. That promise of eternal life, Christian, is for you. And if you have not come to a place where you have believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ, where you have trusted the promise, then you must hear that this promise is for you as well. It is a command to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, to embrace by saving faith, to know the knowledge of the truth that you would be changed and to be resting in the hope that God has set before you. And that's why God has not just left it as a promise. He has also manifested it now in His Word. The Greek is actually very interesting. It's Paul writes that God manifested His Word. He's shown His Word. The Bible is so identified with hope, with life, that it is called that hope. God has manifested it, real hope, in the preaching of His Word. So the purpose of this promise is to bring about, to see saving faith in God's elect, to have them transformed by the truth, and to have them endure through hope. And then finally we see this manifestation of the promise. Not a manifestation in terms of God's Word, but a manifestation in a way that perhaps we can more easily identify with. And that is, in a person, in Titus. And so, in verse 4, he begins to end his hello by saying, To Titus, my true child, in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. And we see that the manifestation of the promise of God first is seen, is shown in true, real change. Titus is called a true child in the common faith, as opposed to what? A false child. You see, it is very easy, especially within the church, to mouth the words. Right? Have you ever had a hymn that you thought you knew 
but you didn't, and you closed your hymnal or put it down, and you were too embarrassed, you wanted to be seen as singing, what did you do? There's even a little catchphrase with this, right? We talk about saying watermelon, right? Watermelon, watermelon, watermelon. So that people think you're singing. See, too many Christians think they can mouth the words of the promise. That they can put on a show because it'll make Grandma happy. Or it'll make Aunt Irma happy. Or Uncle Paul just really likes it when I'm in church. Or Mom and Dad expect me to do this. And if I don't, I won't get time on the computer. I won't get to go play football. So I'll put up with it. Now you see, you can seem to be a child of God to your parents, to your Sunday school teachers, even to me. But that doesn't count. The only thing that counts is being a true child of God. That God looks upon you and sees you wrapped in the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And knows that you are His because of what Jesus has done for you and you have received by faith. And Titus is that kind of Christian. He is a true child of the faith. It is a change that other people see. He cannot keep it hidden. And it is such a change that it binds him to Paul. You see, they don't just have a superficial relationship. Could you imagine Paul and Titus coming into church on Sunday morning in Crete and the sum of their conversation was Paul to Titus? How you doing, Titus? Oh, good, Paul. Good to see you. See you next week. Could you imagine that? No, you can't, can you? Then how can you imagine having that be your Christian life? How can you imagine being superficial? Not building relationships that Jesus has bought for you with his blood. Have you thought about that? We think about Jesus' sacrifice for us, but look around you. There are people sitting next to you because Jesus died. He died to put them next to you. That's a spur to build relationships with them. It is a true change, but it is also finally a continued change. You see, Paul tells Titus that he is a true child in a common faith, and he gives this wonderful greeting that he so often gives, grace and peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus our Savior. Who is being described here? It's Titus. You see, Paul knows that even now, even as a true child of God, even as a leader in the church, even as one who has the promise, Titus needs grace and peace. Because you see, life begins with grace and peace. We have a need for grace. We have a need for peace. We have a need for the truth. We have a need for the Savior. And God brings us this. It is God who initiates this, even as He initiates saving faith. You see, this is how we go on in life. Well, 
God's promise is always true because God never lies. It is founded in God, this promise. It is a promise that builds up His people. It is a promise that manifests itself for all to see. And we're going to see it in weeks to come here in this book of Titus. And it will be a challenge to you and to me, for Titus will tell us how it will be manifested in our marriages, in our churches, in our relationships, in our work, in our view of grace itself. Are you ready to take this journey with me? To see the promise of God laid out before your eyes that you can use for hope of eternal life. That's what Paul is giving to us. That's what the Lord has for us. By His grace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank You that You have manifested Yourself in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that You have manifested Your grace in Your promise. Lord, we ask that You would remind us of this each day that we might serve you with more and more zeal. We ask it in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.